Part Three, Chapter Five of *The Luggage of Life*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. *The Luggage of Life* by Frank W. Borum. Part Three, Chapter Five: The Furniture Van. I am writing in April. The month moves on its way amidst a wealthy cluster of associations. It opens with a festival of folly. The Englishman invariably connects its coming with welcome thoughts of the cuckoo and the crocus. In our Australian minds, it stands related to the rustle of autumn leaves. It is the month of homeward yearning, too, for all exiles. There be many that say, as Browning said, Oh, to be in England, now that April's there! And whoever wakes in England sees some morning, unaware, that the lowest boughs in the brushwood sheaf round the elm-tree bowl are in tiny leaf, while the chaffinch sings on the orchard bough in England, now. April brings, too, more often than not, the tender pathos of Good Friday and the exquisite triumph of Easter. But there is one home to which these chastened joys make no appeal, for to the door of the Australian Methodist parsonage, April brings only the furniture van. We have been engaged in saying sorrowful farewells to ministerial neighbors with whom we have worked side by side through pleasant years of comradeship. And now, without any indication that their work is finished, like plants torn up when in full bloom, they must move on. It is this that has set us thinking. Indeed, it has set Methodism thinking. The whole question of ministerial movement is beset by problems that have made wiser heads than ours to ache. It is true, on the one hand, that the itinerary system is being eyed, not without envy, by the statesmen of other churches. Here, for example, in the latest issue of the Church Family Newspaper, is a leading article suggesting the adoption by the Church of England of a modified Methodism. Presbyterian assemblies have long been discussing it, and Baptists and Congregationalists have sometimes cast shy but wistful glances in the same direction. And yet, and yet on the other hand, two things are clear. The first is that Methodism itself is coming to regard the system as open to review. I have known large city churches apply for registration as central missions, in order that they may stand outside the pale of the itinerary system. And I have known small country churches plead that they might retain their status as home missions rather than be dragged into the sweep of the system. The second fact is that every minister who has stayed in one place long enough to marry the boys and girls that he kissed when he came knows that his most regal influence came to him in the years that followed the fifth. It is then that the best work is done. The minister has won a personal in addition to a merely official authority. His name is graven in the very hearts of his people, and he speaks in their homes with the voice of a king. But let me hasten to say that I am writing to challenge no system and to advocate no system. All these things are in the melting pot, and the churches will be wise if they watch each other closely, confer with each other frankly, and profit by each other's sagacity and experience. Yet one thing I do most unhesitatingly affirm— and it is for that irresistible affirmation that I am contending now. It is this. A ministerial removal should never be mechanical. 
It is a crisis of the soul, perhaps of many souls. It is a thing to be undertaken only after strong crying and tears. I like to recall the searchings of heart that marked a ministerial resignation a century or so ago. Everybody knows the circumstances under which poor old John Fawcett wrote, Blessed be the tie that binds. And at about the same time, Andrew Fuller spent two years in most terrible anguish of soul, whilst he tried to determine whether or not it was his duty to leave his little flock at Soham. "'It seems as if the church and I should break each other's hearts,' he wrote. "'I think, after all, if I go from them, it must be in my coffin.'" His agony of mind led Dr. Ryland to remark that, quote, "'Men who fear not God would risk an empire with fewer searchings of heart than it cost Andrew Fuller to leave a little church.'" hardly containing forty members besides himself and his wife. End quote. And indeed, there is no need to limit the scope of this chapter to manses and parsonages. The same principle holds good of every removal. The tendency of young nations is to regard the furniture van flippantly. A century ago, the removal of an English family from one village to another was regarded as a social tragedy through all the countryside. A man worked for his master because his father had worked for his master's father, and his grandfather for his master's grandfather, and it never occurred to him that some social cataclysm might prevent his grandchildren from serving his master's grandchildren. All that has changed. That day is as dead as the moa and the dodo. The temper of the time has altered. We hail a furniture van nowadays with almost as light a heart as we hail a hansom cab. In his Gamekeeper at Home, Richard Jeffreys, the naturalist, maintains that this very fact has had a good deal to do with the sharp accentuation of our industrial troubles. The old intimate and almost sacred relationship between employer and employé, fortified by associations sanctified by several generations, has broken down, and its collapse has paved the way for all our modern embroilments and agitations. Yes, there is no doubt about it. We overwork the furniture van. Its axles are too hot. Old Daniel Corm comes to mind. I do often see it, friends, said Daniel. I've watched it for years. Here's a young fellow doing good in the Sunday school and other ways, promising to be a useful man when we old folks are gone home. But somebody sends down word that he can make half a crown a week more wages in London. That's enough. No prayer about it. No asking the Lord what he do see. No thinking about the Lord's work. I must get on, he says, and he says it so pious as if it was one of the Ten Commandments. But tisn't, friends, tisn't, though you do hear it so often. Over against Daniel Corm, let us set Dr. Alexander White. In his lecture on Treasure Hid in the Field, the doctor touches on this very matter and tells of a lovely experience. An old office-bearer of this very congregation, he says, told me long ago how he had lately summoned a conference of his whole household in order to make a great family choice and decision. He put it to his wife and to his sons and to his daughters whether he would build a house for them away out of Edinburgh with a park and a garden and stables or whether he would buy a house in the city so as still to be near this church and so as to let his family continue to sit under Dr. Candlish's ministry. And the eyes of that old elder glistened with joy when he told me that he had determined on a house within reach of the pulpit, 
to which he owed his own soul and the souls of his children. His wife had been in Dr. Candlish's ladies' class. Things like that do not happen every day. Dr. White is right. They do not. We are too fond of the furniture van. We ought to regard it in the same category as the world and the flesh and the devil. The number of transfers granted to members leaving one church for another would make our grandsires turn in their graves, whilst the multitude of those who are entered as having moved away, one church's loss being no other church's gain, is appalling. They have moved away, that is all. The furniture van has done its deadly work. Father, mother, lads and lasses have moved away from church and Sunday school, from societies and classes, from useful services and helpful charities and happy ministries. They have moved away. To what? Church secretaries might often mournfully and truthfully enter in the remarks column of the church roll the lay of the lost leader. Just for a handful of silver he left us, just for a ribbon to stick in his coat. Nobody, of course, is so dreamy and unpractical as to suggest that church connections should never be ruptured in order to secure commercial promotion or industrial preferment. That is not the point. The iniquity is with those who order the furniture van before such considerations have been duly weighed. If a man sees the beckoning hand, he must go on. And so long as he is clear that his move is a move nearer to the realization of life's ultimate purpose, the furniture van may be as idyllic a vehicle for him as a chariot and horses of fire. But there is a moving away that is worse still. Paul assures the Christians at Colossae that their Lord shall present them holy and unblameable and unreprovable if they be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That is sorrow's crown of sorrow, life's culminating climax of tragedy to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Wherever the furniture van may take our chairs and tables, our hearts must always abide in the same place. In an age of shifting and of drifting, we must make it the loftiest science of life to dwell in the secret place of the Most High and to abide under the shadow of the Almighty. In the immutable rock of ages, the soul must wisely build her nest. Be not moved away. Surely, if church secretaries are sometimes tempted to inscribe the lay of the lost leader against certain names on the membership roll, it is pardonable to fancy the very angels, from their higher knowledge, writing sadly against other names, moved away. Moved away from the hope of the gospel. It is the dirge of a lost soul. Mr. Young of Jedburgh used to tell a story of old Janet, who in her lonely hut on the Scottish moor was dying at last. She breathed heavily and painfully. Her brown old Bible lay open on the counterpane. The minister came just in time. "'And who is it with you the know, Janet?' he inquired, bending over her wrinkled countenance. Her face was radiant. "'It's all well. It's bonny,' she cried. "'But, man, I'm a wee confused with the flittin'. Happy are all they who, in that last solemn removal, know no more poignant anguish than the mere flutter and flurry of the process. End of Part 3, Chapter 5